0: Good, awesome. It's good to see you guys. I'm excited about the message the Lord has for us today. We got a few new faces uh, in the crowd this morning, so if you would bear with me, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to do a little more extended recap of kind of where we are, because it's going to be necessary to kind of get an understanding of where God has us today. So, for the last year or so, we've been studying the Book of Hebrews, and this Book of Hebrews was written to churches in Rome that were struggling with persecution, specifically um, with uh, the Jewish people trying to convert uh, their family members who had decided to believe in Jesus back to Judaism. Uh, and so we're going to see that really take hold in our message today as the author's kind of rounding out this final warning about what it means, what it will mean for you if you walk away from the Lord. So this book was written as a, as a way to encourage uh, a body of believers. And so, um, it's a, it's a really important book for us, and we've been kind of having this focus, that's part of the reason we have our testimony times on Sunday mornings, is because we want us to see that, I want you guys to see that God's redemptive plan began with Adam and Eve, and we're going to touch on that a little bit this morning, and has been working throughout history with the sole purpose of restoring our relationship with God. And so part of the way that we experience that is by sharing our stories of what God has done in our life, and so um, I appreciate all the testimonies this morning and everybody sharing and being willing to open up, which by the way, I didn't even know that my grandmother had a compound fracture in her back. So thanks for the heads up, Luke. <laughs> I'm glad somebody was praying for. Um, but uh, we'll, 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 we'll touch on that some more later probably as well. But this morning, I want us to, to kind of recap what we talked about last week. And, and I started last week with what I called some cautionary statements. Last week, we talked about God's loving discipline. And anytime you hear that, that word discipline, a lot of times it kind of makes you feel a certain way uh, in your, in your spirit, because nobody likes discipline, right? Like raise your hand if you like being disciplined. No hands are in the air. Okay. Um, good. Cause that'd have been awkward if it was. I started to tell these cautionary statements. The first one was not every negative thing that happens in your life is, um, um that we, not every negative experience that we have is God disciplining us. And that's an important one because often when something bad happens, the first question we ask is God, why me? We make that assumption that if something negative happens, it's because God is punishing us for something that we've done. And I I had a couple of conversations with different people this week who shared a similar experience. And the second one I, I, I threw out there was that not all of us got the opportunity to grow up with healthy relationships with our parents. And so when we think of discipline, immediately our minds go back to those relationships and it skews our understanding of what God's trying to accomplish as he disciplines us. And so this morning, I wanted to kind of run back through those main points, but I wanted to, before we did that, I wanted us to remind us that as we are thinking about God's discipline, what we're talking about is the discipline of a a God that loves us more than anything. He loves us enough to send his son to die for us. And so I want us to kind of have that framework in our minds as we think about his discipline. Uh, Life's difficult a lot of times. And when you add a complicated family history to that, it's easy to misunderstand what God is trying to do in your life. But what a joy it is for us to get to see God's work from his perspective. That's one of the things I love about our testimony time is that you get different people's perspective from different places in life about what it means for God to speak and to work into their lives. So the first point I made last week is that even though life is tough sometimes, we're gonna be okay. I shared kind of some funny stories of, from my life growing up uh, about how people would tell me to basically just cowboy up. If you got hurt, you're not bleeding, move on with life. And that's a good word for us because a lot of times when life is difficult, what we want to do is kind of throw ourselves a pity party and, and feel bad about it. But what God wants us to understand is that we're a lot tougher than we realize. We're more resilient than we realize. If you want to see some testimony of that, watch a toddler learn how to walk, right? I, have a, a, I was thinking this morning about my nephew, Kalen. He never really walked. He went from falling to falling quickly in a direction. Um, And it's still kind of that way now. Um, And he's he's the same age as my boys, but we're a lot more resilient than we think we are. When a toddler falls, they're able to just bounce right back up. And our spiritual lives are like that often as well. Second point I made is that God's goal is to lovingly train us in right character. His purpose is to make us like himself. That's what's gonna be required in order for us to really get to enjoy who he is. And so his discipline, is His love coming out in action in our lives. It's Him training us to be like Him. And we need to realize that our struggles are not the result of God's inattention. I had some more conversation about that this week too, that when a life is difficult, another thing that we often think or the enemy tries to convince us is that God's forgotten about us, that we're not important enough to garner His attention. And that's not true as well. The enemy tries to convince us that God's forgotten about us, and then that's why we're struggling. However, the truth is, and we looked at this last week, is that when we're struggling, what we know for certain is that God is active, that He's working in that struggle. Scripture says that He works out all things for our good. It's in Romans chapter 8. But He's working on your behalf because He loves you. And the third thing was that God's work in our life allows us to share in His holiness. As we are made more like Him, we get to be co-heirs in the kingdom, that we get to be just like Him at some point, And that process is making us like Him. And as we respond, allowing God to work, He's purifying our hearts. Although it, life may not look or feel the way we want it to, we can find peace and comfort in the fact that in the midst of our struggle, God is still doing something, that it's not wasted. Um, and that God's love is actively pursuing us, whether we're on the mountaintop or sinking in the ocean. God's right there with us, and He's working on us. Okay. As we continue in chapter twelve today, I want us to see that the author is going to continue to kind of speak um, to our responses to our life circumstances. That as we read the scripture this morning, this is a message for a people that were being persecuted. In Rome, but it's also a message for us for hearing today. So look at these next couple of verses with me. in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Um, and you can either pull it up on uh, your Bible app or it'll be up on the screen. But follow along with me. It says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or reverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. You know, last week we focused on the struggles that are on our own life and how we deal with those. But today the author is going to kind of turn that focus from us And put it on the body of Christ there's a very particular issue that the author is addressing in this section and and as we've talked about extensively there was great temptation for the church to abandon their belief in Jesus and the temptation was there because in that culture when you left Judaism you left your family they disowned you which meant you lost your jobs it meant you lost your security you lost your home all of that was gone and so there's this great temptation, if their, their family is saying, that if you will just renounce Jesus, you can have all that back, come on back home. And I don't know about you and what your family life is like, but if my family completely shunned me, I'd be willing to do just about anything to receive that love again, right? I think most of us are probably that way. And so that's what they're struggling with. And so the author is writing to address that particular thing. That, that they are not to renounce Jesus and go back to their Jewish religion. I, I listened to a, a podcast last week. It's a great one. I, I recommend it's by Watt, uh, Matt Whitman. It's called the 10-Minute Bible Hour. Let that sink in for just a minute. It's wonderful. He's a really... Uh, awesome guy who, who loves history and he brings a lot of history into the scripture. And he referenced in, in episode 553, that's the one I was listening to last week. He's done a lot of those uh, podcasts. He's referencing, he's talking about Matthew 23, verse 37 through 38. And I wanted to mention it today because it's going to help us kind of frame what the author of Hebrews is saying. Uh, listen to this out of Matthew 23, verse 37 through 38. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is Jesus talking, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. When Jesus uses this word desolate, he's purposely invoking a very specific idea In this previous part of Matthew chapter 23, if you go back and look at that later, it's that section where Jesus is talking specifically to the religious leaders and he's given all the woes. Woe to you this and woe to you that. And he is condemning the activities of these religious leaders. And he's quoting Psalm 118 verses eight through nine. It says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humanity. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in nobles. He's saying to the Pharisees, It is better for these people to not trust in you. And what is their job as the religious leaders? It's to lead the people, right? And so here's Jesus telling the Pharisees to their face, you are the problem. Matt makes this statement, and I believe it was in the podcast right before this one, about how the religious leaders, generation after generation, are building up a kingdom for themselves while calling it God's kingdom. So they're garnering up everyone's attention, all their money, they're building up their own pride, their own stature, and they're calling it God's kingdom, but really they were building their own. And this is why they feel so threatened by Jesus, It's because his entrance, if he is the Messiah, they're going to lose all of that because they won't need the priest anymore. And that's why in Matthew 23, verse 38, when he uses that word desolation, it immediately brings to all of those religious leaders' minds the prophecy of Daniel that's found in chapter 9, verse 27, where Daniel is prophesying about the desolation of the temple because it has been defiled. And so Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, you are the ones that are defiling the temple. Your job is to protect it, to minister to people, and you are the problem. The point I'm making here is that those that were stuck in religion not only denied that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but they also killed him. And they were beckoning these Christ followers to come back to their dead religion. These people that are telling the churches in Rome, forget about this Jesus guy. Those are the same people, it's the same group who killed Jesus. And so you see the struggle that's happening here. It's these people have heard the message of Jesus, And they've seen the reality of what it is. They see that Jesus came, that he was the Son of God. They've chosen to believe that. And their families, this religious group, is telling them, no, he wasn't really the Son of God. You need to come listen to me. Do you see the problem there? It's causing a lot of tension. And those people were so stuck in dead religion that they not only denied that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but they killed him. And they're calling him back. This attempt at derailing the faith of the church in Rome, is exactly what the author of Hebrews is addressing. He's addressing this idea that just because someone says this is the right way to do things doesn't mean it necessarily is. We need to go to God and ask those things. That same sin pattern that Jesus was addressing in the lives of the Pharisees is the same one that we're seeing in these religious leaders that are trying to convince these believers, these Christians, to come back to their Jewish faith. The religious leaders are still trying to overthrow Jesus' authority. And to combat this temptation, the author of Hebrews is calling on the church to do a very specific thing. This is point number one for today. Point one of two is to make a decided effort to pursue peace and holiness. To make a decided effort to pursue peace and holiness. Look at these first two verses with me again. It says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and defiling many. I want to qualify what I mean by making a decided effort because very quickly you can move that into a works-based mentality. Here at The Gathering Place, we're all about God's grace and we believe that God has done all that's necessary to save us. We sang about that this morning. That all that needed in, us for, in order for us to be uh, pleasing to God was done by Jesus on the cross. And so as I make a statement about, um, about making decided effort, I want to be real clear about what that means. It'd be easy for us to kind of slip back in that, but he's calling on the church to stand by its commitment to Christ by pursuing God. It's about pursuing God. It isn't that we need to do something to please God. It's a call to follow through with your commitment when you gave your life to Christ. We use that term a lot these days, but when a person gives their life to Christ, they are literally doing that. They are trusting Jesus for their salvation instead of their own works. whenever somebody gives their life to Christ, something really interesting happens. This week, I, I walked into um, Track Supply. Uh, kind of quick backstory. We had, my dad had a litter of puppies. A couple of them weren't making it. Mom rejected them. And so I had to make a running dash to Track Supply to get some, some formula for a puppy and a little bottle to, to bottle feed it. And so I'm in a hurry, right? I'm supposed to be at work, but I'm going to Track Supply. My boss is calling. People are calling. And I'm trying to get all of this done. And so I can't find anything. They're resetting the shelves. And I'm flustered. Have you ever been like that before? You're in a hurry and you can't find what you're looking for. And I'm really flustered in the moment. And I'm going, God, what are you? come on, I got to get this done. I got to get home. The puppy's going to die. And so I finally find somebody that helped The formula's over here and bottles were on the other side of the store. It made no sense. Um, so we finally get everything that we need. And I get up to the cash register and the cashier that's standing there is a young woman that I say young, she's my age. We were in youth group together. And I was like, Hey, how are you? And she's like, I'm great. I got baptized two weeks ago. Okay, pump the brakes. All right, Holy Spirit, I, you got my attention. And so a, a conversation began. And I won't share all the details of that with you today, but the point that I want to make is that in the midst of my busyness, in the midst, in the midst of, of my rush and feeling like I need to really move forward, God told me to just pause for a moment. And so we got to have a, about a 10-minute conversation. And one of the things that she shared with me was that her whole life, She believed and understood that unless you killed somebody or did some other really bad sin, that you were a believer, that you were going to get to go to heaven. Because her understanding of how religion worked is that if you were a good person and you qualify that by what you think is bad or not bad, determine whether or not you got to go to heaven. Well, a couple of weeks ago, she heard the gospel the first time. She understood what Jesus actually did. And she couldn't wait to tell somebody. She told me. And so we had a lot of great conversation about that. What happens when somebody finally sees Jesus is that they see the results of the disobedience in their own life and in the rest of the world. And and they go, you know what, that that disobedience thing, that's not working. But here's Jesus who offers a solution to the problem of sin in my life. Making a decided effort means for us that every day we remind ourselves that our life is not our own. For me when i was in tractor supply my goal my intention was to get in and get out but in my life in that morning i'd made a decided effort to try and pursue the lord as best i could and when i saw the holy spirit's work i pumped the brakes i said okay this has got to be more important than what i'm doing at this very moment side story by the way the puppy's still alive okay so don't panic my conversation with somebody about jesus didn't kill a puppy We all good? Okay, all right. I want to make sure. I didn't want anybody in their brain being like, what happened to the puppy? Because that's where my brain would go, okay? When we make a decided effort, we're choosing every day to trust Jesus with our life. And I want us to think about those words. It's not just that we're trusting Jesus right now for something that may happen in the future, that one day when I die, I'll be able to be in heaven. When we're trusting in Jesus, we're making a decision every day that we're going to let him call the shots. It's not just about salvation when we die. It's about salvation right now. Not to say that your salvation isn't, if you don't make that decision every day, I'm not saying that you lose your salvation. I'm saying that every day when we start our day, we make a decision on whether or not we're gonna pursue God for that day. Does that make sense? The struggle that the church is having is this one right here. Look at verse 15 again. He says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and defiling many. These words that he's using are a direct throwback to Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. He says, and this is what it says in Deuteronomy, it says, Be sure there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart, listen to this, turns away from the Lord, our God, to go and worship other gods, little g, of those nations. Be sure that there's no root among you bearing poisonous fruit and bitter fruit. The author's not talking about general sin, he's talking about something very specific. He's warning against people choosing to walk in disobedience. They've heard the truth of the gospel. They've received the Holy Spirit. They know that Jesus was the Messiah, yet there's this temptation to walk away from that for the sake of comfort. And that's what he's addressing. I've made this point many times over the past few years, and I, want, I felt like the Lord wanted me to make it again today, but our relationship with Jesus Reveal the truth about who he is to other people. And I've said that phrase a lot over the years, and I was unsure if I should say it again today, and then I read this this morning. This is, uh, I think, out of A.B. Simpson. I put the author up there. Yeah, A.B. Simpson. The practical preparation for the Lord's coming consists first of fully entering into fellowship with him in our own spiritual lives. And I added this part. This is a daily decision. Letting him not only cleanse us, but perfect us in all the finer touches of the Spirit's deeper work. Following that, following that it will mean getting out of ourselves and living for the benefit of others and the preparation of the world for his appearing. Maybe Simpson is echoing what God was speaking to me about this passage. That this warning that he's given to the church is that it's not just a warning for each person individually, but that their decision is gonna affect the rest of the people in their lives. And God wants us to see that today, that the decisions that we make every morning when we get up, whether or not we're gonna pursue the Lord that day and let him control our lives, or if we're gonna take control of our lives, matters. It matters to the people around us, not just to us. In order to be a follower of Jesus, we have to do just that, we gotta follow him. That's That's how that works, right? If you're going your own way, you're not following. I, I was thinking about it this way this morning. This would be like going through all the effort of mapping out your drive to go somewhere in Google or Waze or Apple Maps, whatever you prefer to use. Figuring all of that out, getting all your waypoints put in, and then just turning it off and trying to figure it out on your own. What would be the point, right? And that's kind of what I want us to understand today is that God's already given us the map. He showed us the way to do it. We don't need to just throw that stuff to the side. God desires to be actively involved in your life and to lead you. This is from um, Tozer this morning as well. I, I, I wanted to share this stuff with you guys because I want you to see what God is saying over and over and over again. He references 1 Corinthians 9.27. It said, Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Tozer says, "We must. What must our Lord think of us if His work and His witness depend upon the convenience of his people. The truth is that every advance that we make for God and for his cause must be made at our inconvenience. It does not inconvenience us at all. If it does not inconvenience us at all, there's no cross in it. If we have been able to reduce spiritually to a smooth pattern and it cost us nothing, no disturbance, no bother, and no element of sacrifice in it, we are not getting anywhere with God. We have stopped and, and pitched our unworthy tent halfway between the swamp and the peak. We are mediocre Christians. Was there ever a cross that was convenient? Was there ever a convenient way to die? I've never heard of any. And judgment is not going to be a matter of convenience either. Yet we look around for convenience, thinking we, we can reach the mountain peak conveniently and without trouble or danger to ourselves. Church, what God's been kind of speak to us over the last year is that we're called to share our story that as we're in the middle of trying to save a puppy tractor supply and you're in a big hurry that we got to make room to be inconvenienced that when the holy spirit speaks we take note and we act as he calls us to act this is the reality of living in an abiding relationship we got a lot of new faces in here this morning you may not know what we're talking about but we we teach something here a lot called the abiding cycle And the abiding cycle is pretty simple. Think of it like a clock. And at the beginning is where God speaks. That's at 12 o'clock. And then at three o'clock is what I'm addressing today is we have a choice. We can either choose to obey God or we can choose to disobey God. If we disobey God, the cycle ends right there. But if we choose to obey God, then we get to see God do something that we couldn't do on our own. We call that God-exclusive activity. We see it all through Scripture. And then when we see God do what only He can do, it causes us to be enamored with Him, to fall deeper in love with Him. And that's over here at 9 o'clock. And then we go, God, do it again. That was really cool. And then we're right back at the top again. The only way we can abide in Christ is if we're obeying Him. And this is significant for us. The church in Rome was struggling because of the hardships that they were enduring. And they had caused their focus of their lives to shift from their mission, from their calling, to their comfort. The author's trying to protect the church by warning them that if they defect from their faith, other people are going to join them. Look back at verse 14 again. says, Pursue peace with everyone in holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. If we make a decided effort to pursue God and to share that pursuit, people are going to get to see who God is. If we don't make that decided effort... Nobody gets to see who God is. It's only through obedience that the gospel is shared. It's only through God's activity in our life that we get to see who he is and that other people get to experience that as well. If we allow a culture to develop where it's not only okay but accepted to disobey God, we become just like those religious leaders that Jesus was calling out in Matthew. We're building up a kingdom for ourselves and not for the Lord our house too will become desolate because we will have forsaken the very thing that makes us who we are, which is Jesus. If you choose not to follow through with what God's told you to do, you are creating a culture of disobedience and you're halting the spread of the gospel. And I know that's strong language, but it's the truth. We talk about obedience on a regular basis and it's not something that's just a throwaway term for us. It's significant, not only to your life, but to the life of the people around you. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, there's a big difference in renouncing your faith and then not just following through with something that God's told you to do. But I kind of think they're the same thing. And I think that because if you will remember back to Adam and Eve, a snack is what caused all of this trouble for them and all of humanity a bite of a piece of fruit, right? They didn't kill anybody. They walked in disobedience. God said, you can eat from anywhere. Don't eat from there. And they did. It's easy in our minds for us to say, well, there's the big sins and here's the little sins. And the big sins, I'm not going to touch those because that'll get me in a lot of trouble with God. But these little ones down here, he did not really care about those. But that's not how it works. Sin is sin. It doesn't, there is no big or little. You're either holy or you're not holy. When you're not holy, you're a sinner. That's where we all find ourselves. It's where we're born in. And what God wants us to see today, church, is that when we disobey what God's calling us to do, whether we feel like it's little or not, it's significant and it affects our lives. We talked about last week when we were talking about the discipline of God, about whether or not the negative things happen in our lives are a result of something that we've done or if it's just the result of a broken world. And the reality is, is sometimes what we experience in life is the result of sin now, I want to I make a point here. I want to make this crystal clear that as believers, we've received grace and forgiveness for all things. When we give our life to Christ, we are forgiven. I'm not saying that God won't forgive us. He absolutely will. He promises that He will. What I am saying, though, is that when He forgives us, all the consequences of that sin don't miraculously disappear. We're still left with the consequences. And we still have to deal with that stuff. This is not a statement on the status of your relationship with God. I'm not insinuating that there's anything that you can do to make God go back on his word. But what we see in this passage is that while our sins are forgiven, they still have an impact on our lives and the lives of those around us. This is what the author's driving home. If you leave your faith, other people are gonna follow you. If you choose to create a culture of disobedience, others are gonna follow you. If you make sin acceptable, people are going to make it acceptable. They're going to accept it. Point number two, sin, if left unchecked, will destroy the church. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here. We're going to see this in scripture, okay? This is not me trying to get some big points. Look at, uh, as as he continues in verse 16 and 17, he says, and make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. I want us to to jump back real quick, let's look at that story of Esau in case that's a little fuzzy in your mind. This is from Genesis 25:29 through 34. And I want us to look at this because if you'll remember in chapter 11, we had this, what they call the hall of faith, where the author of Hebrews is talking about the faith of all of these people. And then he calls out one guy, Esau. You don't want to be Esau. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. You don't want to be the Esau. Don't be like that guy. Okay. But let's go look at Esau and see why he's calling him out. Because this is a well-known story for the people that he's talking to. Genesis 25, 29 to 34, said once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he was also named Edom. Pause for just a minute. In case you don't know this, Jacob and Esau are twins. Esau was born first and Jacob was holding on to his heel. And that's significant because because of, of inheritance. We're about to get to that. Jacob replied, so Saul said or I'm sorry, Esau said, Give me some of that stew you're cooking. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. So here's Esau, the firstborn of Isaac think about who Isaac is for just a minute let's walk backwards in history father Abraham had many sons right one of those sons was who Isaac remember Isaac God told him to sacrifice Isaac they went up on the mountain built the altar God provided the sacrifice he didn't kill Isaac same Isaac okay so now Isaac's a dad and he has two sons Esau and Jacob what did God promise Abraham he'd have many sons right God continues that promise. Look at Genesis 26, one through six. He says, there's another famine in the land in addition to the one that once occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, at Gerir. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien and I will be with you and bless you. For I will give you all these lands to you and your offspring and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky I will give your offspring all these lands and the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statues, and my instructions. Okay, so we got Abraham. God makes this promise. I'm going to make your family massive and it's going to be a blessing to the entire world. And God in Genesis chapter 26 tells Isaac, I'm going to continue that. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do and I'm going to do it through you as well. So when Esau gives up his birthright, it's not like a little thing. Remember too, also, remember Abram, Abraham's, my name was Abram before God worked in his life. He and his, I think it was his brother, his cousin, Lot. Their tribes were so big, their flocks were so big that their shepherds were getting in fights and they had to separate and go to different parts of the country. Like literally had to move 100 miles away from each other to have enough land to feed these flocks. And here we are a generation later, that stuff has only grown even more massive. And Esau gives up his, his birthright, which was a double portion. So he'd get twice as much as Jacob. He gives it up for a bowl of stew. You see the point the author's trying to make? Don't be like Esau. Don't forsake what God has given you. Let's bring that back to where we are today. The author's drawing a parallel between this well-known story and this warning to the church. Don't trade the treasure of a relationship with God through Jesus for something as meager as momentary happiness. We have received an incredible inheritance. Scripture says that we are co-heirs with Christ. The church understood that. The church in Rome understood that as believers, they too were co-heirs in Christ. And the temptation that they're facing is to give up that inheritance in order for momentary happiness to make life more convenient and more comfortable. You see the message God's got for us today. Don't give up your birthright. To bring this back into focus, the people are contemplating walking away. And this is a temptation that all of us fight on a regular basis. As I mentioned last week, and it needs to be mentioned here as well, well, we don't like hardship, right? Nobody enjoys that. And when, we give an oppor- when we're given an opportunity to move away from pressure, we do. That's instinctive. We react that way. That's why when you go to touch something, you realize it's hot, you jerk back. We move away from things that are painful. We're wired to work that way. The problem is, and we see this in Esau's life, and we experience it in our own, is that by the time we felt the pain of disobedience, it's too late. We know that Esau regretted his decision. Again, I want us to see that it's too late because the damage is done and the consequences of our actions are going to be left there. Again, I'm not saying that God can't or won't forgive you. He absolutely will. But the effects of your choice to disobey are not going to just disappear. Esau regretted his decision to give up his inheritance, but it was too late. The deed was done. Look at in verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 2 it says, you know that afterward, When he wanted his father's blessings, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. Church, there's more I could say about that, but I want us to kind of move into the application for today, for our own lives out of these few verses. While you may not be struggling with renouncing your faith, there's not a person in this room who doesn't struggle every day with sin, myself included. Over the last few years, God has been slowly moving us into a deeper level of commitment to Him where we realize as a body that being a believer is not just about showing up here on Sunday mornings. It's not just about participating in life group. It's about giving your whole life to Him. It's like what Carrie talked about this morning. He's been doing CrossFit his whole life, loves it, getting a little old. I, I don't know what I should do, God. Tell me what to do. And then he's following through with what God said. That's what abiding's about. That's what God wants out of us. We fully understand the necessity of obedience. And we see over and over and over again through Scripture that the results of, of whether or not we obey or disobey. And there's no gray area when it comes to disobedience. You're either obeying God or you're not. Think about your own children or nieces or nephew. You tell them to go do something and you're about to leave the house and you say go to the bathroom. There's no gray area there. They're either going to obey you and go to the bathroom or they're not. And we're not stopping on the way, right? You're going to have to hold it. There's no gray area. We either choose to obey or we choose not to obey. Because in our minds, we'll try to justify things. And as soon as that happens, we're in trouble. All too often, we decide to ignore God's prompting for the sake of ease and for convenience or simply out of neglect. The challenge to the church in Rome is as necessary for them as it is for us today. God's desire to speak in your life, to guide you, to bring you closer to him, that's his desire. He wants us to share in his holiness. He wants us to share this gospel message with people that don't know them. And we have to decide daily if we're going to make the effort to pursue God and to obey his, his voice. If we ignore the areas of our lives where we're not obeying, the consequences of that sin are going to continue to build, and they'll affect your life and the life of this body, and the life of the people in, you, in your life that you love. This is not a call to try harder. This is a call to repentance. It's a call to remember that you entrusted your life to Jesus. You said to him, I trust you to make these decisions in my life. I trust that your way is better than my way. And every day we got to reaffirm that commitment in our own minds, not because God's changed, but because we're weak. Because every day we need the reminder that we're supposed to depend on God. It doesn't matter how big or how little the, God, uh, the thing is that God's asking you to do. If he asked, it matters. It doesn't matter if it's teaching a Sunday school class. It does not matter if it's stopping at a cash register to have a conversation with somebody that you used to know. It doesn't matter if God's called you to be a pastor of a church. It doesn't matter if God's calling you to be a missionary somewhere or just to stop on the way of the store and buy somebody a coffee. If he asks you to do it, it's significant. God has a call in all our lives. But we have to make a decision every day to follow him. If we don't, it's going to have tragic results in our lives and the lives of people around us. I want to end today with another, this is uh, another uh, word from A.B. Simpson this morning. It said, it is great deliverance to lose oneself. There is no heavier millstone than self-consciousness. It is easy to become introverted and coiled around ourselves in spiritual consciousness. There's nothing that is so easy to fasten on on to as our misery. There is nothing that is more apt to produce self-consciousness than suffering. Then it becomes almost a, a settled habit to hold on to our burden and pray it unceasingly into the very face of God until our prayer saturates us with our own misery. Rather, we should ask for the power to drop ourselves altogether and leave ourselves in his loving hands and know that we are free. Then we may rise into the blessed liberty of his higher thoughts, and he will demonstrate his love and care for others. The very act of letting go of ourselves lifts us into a higher place and relieves us from the thing that is hurting. This habit of prayer for others, and especially for the world, brings its own recompense and leaves upon our hearts a blessing, like the fertility in which the Nile deposits upon the soil of Egypt as it flows to its ultimate goal. There's nothing more vital in our lives than to obey God. And what A.B. Simpson is talking about this morning, that was to summarize all of that, is that when we're focused on ourselves, that's all we're ever going to discover is more more misery, more suffering, because we've made it about us. But when we will trust God, when we'll give our lives to Him and say, God, life is hard right now, this thing is going on, and I don't know what to do with it, but I trust you to handle it. When we do that, it changes everything. Now our focus isn't on us and God's going to begin to use us to work in other people's lives as well. And while he's doing that, he's going to fix the thing that we left at his feet so we don't have to. As we close in worship this morning, I want this this last song that we're going to sing together to be our prayer, that Jesus would be our joy. There's nothing more important for us than to find that Jesus wants to be our joy. He wants to be our everything, and when we will allow him to be that, it will change our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we come to to you this morning just kind of laid bare, all of it out there. Father, we know that there are areas in our lives where we're still trying to be in control. Lord, as we we worship this morning, I want to ask that you would continue to work in our hearts, that you would reveal those areas of our lives where we have not yet let go. And God, that in this moment, in these next few minutes, that your spirit would speak to us, that you'd give us peace and comfort and, and the strength and the courage it's going to require to trust you. Father, all that we need can only come from you. Even the desire for you comes from you. Father, this morning as we sing and as we pray, I ask that you would work in our hearts and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.